If you followed our show for a while, you've heard me express concerns about the rise of centralized powers in our country and in our world. Powerful individuals are lobbying our politicians in order to pass legislation that further erodes our freedoms. For example, just this week, Congress refused to pass an amendment by Representative Thomas Massey that would have defunded the 2026 kill switch mandate for cars. 19 Republicans voted against Massey, allowing it to pass the House. You heard me right. By 2026, your vehicle will have a kill switch that will shut off your car against your wishes at the push of a button. So who is behind all of these dystopian nightmares coming from our world leaders? On today's show, we will do our best to get to the bottom of the deep state, globalism, and the wannabe masters of the world. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Welcome to Forge and Anvil, where we hammer out uncomfortable conversations about culture, theology, and politics to sharpen ourselves for the race set before us. My name is Connor. I am host of this podcast, and I am joined tonight by a first-time guest, someone who has uh, hopefully some great answers to some of those questions that we just mentioned, Alex Newman. So, Alex, go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience. Hey, guys. Uh, thank you very much for having me, Connor. Thank you for the uh, introduction. So, I'm Alex. I'm a journalist. I write about a lot of different things with a special emphasis on education, China, international affairs. I'm a Christian, first and foremost, uh, husband, father of uh, five and counting. And um, yeah, that's, uh, that's me in a nutshell. So Awesome. Well, welcome on, Alex. I'm excited for this conversation. Before we get started, be sure to like and share this video to boost us in the algorithms. Follow us on Twitter at Forge and A for additional content and updates on the show. Share this video and repost the stream on X. We are live on X. If you want to join us in the chat, though, be sure to jump over to Rumble or YouTube where we can take your chat. And uh, of course, we are usually live Monday nights as well. So be sure to join us there. And uh, feel free to share this far and wide. We really appreciate it. Anyways, Alex, I want to go ahead and just dive straight in here. So like I mentioned, we've talked a lot um, on this podcast about globalism, World Economic Forum, the deep state, all those things that you know much more about than I do. Um, but we have never really done a deep dive into sort of the history of what is the deep state? What is the World Economic Forum? Where did some of these entities come from? So I wanted to kind of start from the beginning. Obviously, we could go back. You and I are both believers, and we know that you can go back to the Garden of Eden if you really wanted to. Um, but for sake of conversation, it's not super helpful. I'm assuming when it comes to American history, we could kind of trace the creation of these deep state actors and sort of the the globalism push, at least in America, probably to Woodrow Wilson. That's probably about where I usually uh, would uh, gauge it as a starting point. But uh, you go ahead and let me know if I'm off on that. And if you have any um, any. Uh, insight as to where the real creation of these entities sort of started feel free to go ahead and uh, expand upon that sure well uh, thanks again for having me on connor and yeah i mean i i think it's helpful to first look at this from a biblical perspective i, I think if you're a christian um you you really need to have your views on this rooted in scripture and as you just pointed out it does go back to the garden of eden it goes back to satan i always tell people the most important thing you can understand about the deep state is that satan is the commander and chief and um, and I mean that quite literally, right? Sometimes people think I'm joking. Like, no, no, I'm I'm, I'm serious. He's actually their commander in chief. Um, you look at, for example, what happened in uh, Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel, uh, the the effort to build a, kind of the one world system, the big tower to reach heaven. 
etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, you go uh, 3000 years ago in uh, psalm 2 you have this really interesting psalm where david uh, literally 3000 years ago i mean this is a thousand years before christ uh, arrived on the scene in the flesh uh, he says the kings of the earth take their stand is uh, psalm 2 verse 2 the rulers conspire together against the lord and his anointed one so 3000 years ago you had the kings of the earth and the rulers conspiring together against God um, and against God's people, against Jesus Christ. And so this is a very, very ancient thing. You know, when, when people think that they've discovered some, you know, the Bilderbergers, and that's the, the nucleus of it all, the Illuminati. Right? Oh, they, now we've got it figured out. No, no, you got to go back to the very beginning. Uh, this Absolutely. is a diabolical plot against God. And, um, you know, to the extent that we fit in, we fit in in that biblical context. Now, uh, I believe these forces have been active in America from the very beginning. Um, and in fact, George Washington actually believed this. I'm, I'm pulling out the quote here real quick so I don't uh, uh, botch it. But uh, the Illuminati was a real organization. Uh, in fact, it was uh, started back in 1776 by Adam Weishaupt, who was a professor of canon law at Ingolstadt University. And... Um, one of the things that we learn from George Washington, uh, a friend of his, I should go back a little bit, a friend of George Washington's had given him a copy of a book called Proofs of a Conspiracy. Uh, I have this book. It's a very, very good book. And it's about the Illuminati. It was actually written by a high level Scottish Freemason. And uh, in this book, uh, the, the, the Freemason was called John Robeson. He was actually the first head of the Royal Society of Edinburgh. And uh, as a Freemason, he had been traveling through uh, continental Europe. He had been through the Masonic lodges in Paris, in, um, in uh, Berlin, in uh, St. Petersburg, in Russia. And what he found was there was this effort to basically hijack Freemasonry. And uh, he describes the goal, and other others who became aware of this also described the goal as the destruction of all religions, particularly Christianity, all governments, and uh, the the ultimately the destruction of the family and the abolishing of private property, which uh, it sounds a lot like Marxism, right? Say so right. the, Karl, the uh, Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto. This is exactly what they call for. And so George Washington had been given this book, Proofs of a Conspiracy. It was published in 1798. He actually attributes the French Revolution to the work of the Illuminati through its infiltration of the Masonic lodges, uh, particularly in France. And uh, of course, we, we know it was a, a radically anti-Christian. Uh, they beheaded tens of thousands of Christians. They they, mm. uh, they actually put a prostitute up in Notre Dame Cathedral. They told everybody to worship this goddess of reason. Uh, they hated God so much they couldn't even tolerate a seven-day week. So they had to move to uh, a 10-day week. Of course, God created the world in six days, rested on the seventh. So they wanted to get rid of the seven-day week. And um, in his response to, to his friend who gave him this book, George Washington said this, and I'm quoting directly from his letter that uh, I, I found in the National Archives. He says, it is not my intention to doubt that the doctrine of the Illuminati and the principles of Jacobinism had not spread in the United States. On the contrary, no one is more satisfied of this fact than I am. So we have had these diabolical forces at work in our country from the very beginning, um, you know, oftentimes they, they pretend to be Christian. Oftentimes they even use the language of Christians to avoid detection. But uh, ultimately, these forces that have been waging war on God and God's people have been active in our country from the very beginning. And, and they're still very active today. They're just more out of the closet now than they used to be back in the, in the 1700s. Wow. So would you say that Washington was kind of complicit with some of these um, 
these Illuminati theories that, are, that were kind of taking place during these early years of American history? Well, he makes clear in this letter that he is alarmed by this trend. Uh, mm. I, I, I would argue that, uh, you know, a lot of people point to George Washington and they say he was a Freemason, therefore he was evil, therefore he was a conspirator. Mm. Uh, I disagree with that view. Um, in, in fact, George Washington himself uh, kind of downplayed his involvement. He was a Freemason, it's, it's true. Uh, but he kind of downplayed uh, his involvement in Masonry. Uh, in fact, uh, later in life, he's like, I haven't even been to a lodge in like decades, you know, whatever. Um, and so I, I do not believe that he was a deliberate conspirator. Uh, in fact, I, I believe he was a, a great man of God. I believe he was used by God for very important purposes uh, for, for founding this nation, which God used to take the gospel to every corner of the planet. Um, was he a human being? Absolutely. Uh, did he have sin in his life? Absolutely. And any one of us who claims that we don't, we're liars. <laughs> so, right. um, you know, so, so I, I think deification of George Washington is a mistake, but he was a great man of God. Uh, when you read the, the just the historical accounts of how God's hand was on him, how no matter how many bullets they would shoot at him, somehow they could never get him, right? It would go through his coat. It would go through his hat. It was just unbelievable how God had his hand on this man. And um, I actually went to go visit his grave uh, some years ago, um, at, uh, at Mount Vernon, uh, where his old uh, estate was. And he's got a nice Bible verse on, on his, uh, on his tombstone, uh, talking about entering into the kingdom of heaven. So, um, you know, I, I do believe George Washington was a Christian. Um, you know, did he, did he get, uh, confused sometimes? Did he, was he involved in things that he probably shouldn't have been involved in? Sure. Every single one of us is guilty of the same thing, but I don't believe Washington was a conspirator, but I do think it's interesting that he was aware of this, you know, th this Illuminati conspiracy that uh, John Robeson identifies. Um, he, he says that they were trying to hijack Freemasonry to use it for this revolutionary purpose. And, and if you look at the outline of what he said they believed, it, it is a total inversion of God's principles. God ordained nations, and so they wanted to abolish nations. God ordained the family, so they wanted to abolish the family. God uh, ordained the church, so they wanted to overthrow the church. They wanted a one-world government. Um, a, they wanted to get rid of private property. God ordained private property when he said, thou shalt not steal. So it's really a total inversion of the order that God created. And if you look at George Washington's life, and if you look at his writings, he certainly was not on board with any of that. He was an ardent believer in private property. Uh, he was constantly giving thanks to God, you know, exactly the, the nature of his relationship with Christ. I can't speak to that, but, um, just from his own writings, I think it, it is very clear that, uh, he was a, uh, a follower of God and that he had a relationship with God. So, uh, so yeah, that's, uh, that's my view on Washington. And we'll be working on a book on this uh, coming soon. As soon as I drop my next one on education, we're going to go back mm. and do a book on the, the history, the true history of America, um, you know, the, the Christian history, which unfortunately has really been lost to the, yeah. the present generation through dumbing really down and indoctrination in the school. Uh, but then the other side too, that's been lost is, this subversive strain that's been there from the beginning as well with the, the Illuminati. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Manly P. Hall talks about the secret destiny of America. And so uh, there are people who have been hoping to harness the political, the economic, the military might of this incredible superpower called the United States for subversive purposes. And, and in some senses, they've been very, very effective, especially in recent decades. Uh, and so that that's sad. But I think that history needs to be told. So we'll be working on that uh, hopefully next year. Awesome. Well, it's definitely a much needed book. I mean, was there any specific significance for the uh, to specifically Freemasons? And, and how would you kind of could you give us maybe a running definition of that just so that our audience kind of understands why there was a focus on that from the Illuminati standpoint? 
Sure. Well, uh, Freemasonry is a secret society, and it's been around for a very long time. Um, you know, e even Mason Masonic historians tell different tales of how far back it stretches and, and all that. Uh, and by its nature, it's a secret society, so there's a lot that is not known. There are several branches of Masonry. You've got the Scottish Rite, you've got the York Rite, you've got all these different degrees and uh, you know offshoots, and, and so uh, so you know there is no like one thing called Freemasonry, um, but um, you know, a lot of America's founding fathers were Freemasons, uh, and there are plenty of decent people who are involved in Freemasonry today. So I don't mean to sound like I'm condemning Freemasonry outright. Um, by its nature, being a secret society, though, it is ripe for being hijacked and misused by evildoers. Um, you know, when you talk to Masons, one of the first things they'll tell you is, yeah, if you want to be a Mason, you have to believe in God. Um, and, you know, th that's fine, but which God, right? And and they're not right. clear on that. And And for me, that's problematic. Um, you know, Jesus Christ said himself uh, twice in the Gospels in, in um, uh, Matthew and in Luke, he's quoted as saying, whoever's not with me is against me. And so you're either with Christ or you're against Christ. Yeah. And, and it's not just some nebulous conception of a deity. Right. It's it's a God that we can understand. It's a God that we can know. It's a God that reveals himself in the in the Holy Scriptures. And so from that perspective, I think there, there's a problem there. But, uh, you know, a lot of the Freemasons in America would consider themselves Christians, would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Um but uh, as you read John Robeson, and again, John Robeson was a Freemason, so nobody can accuse him of, of being anti-Masonry, but he exposes this effort to hijack it for sinister purposes. And, and I believe the reason they wanted to hijack it was, well, for one, it had lodges all over the place. It was an incredibly huge network. It had a lot of prominent people involved, people in royalty, people in government, people who were highly influential. Uh, now, the Catholic Church to this day won't allow you to be a Catholic and a Freemason. In fact, you're supposed to be automatically removed from the Catholic Church if you join Masonry, although that's very rarely enforced anymore these days. But, um, you know, it, it's kind of an enigma. Um, I, I think by nature, things that are done in secret, um, for me at least, are, are you know, why, why would you do it in secret? I, I mean, wh why do you need to do that behind closed doors? Why why can't people see that? Uh, so, you know, from that perspective, I, I, I don't think that's uh, maybe a, an appropriate way to go about doing things. But uh, I, I don't believe that Freemasonry necessarily from the start has been a part of this satanic effort to create a one world order. But of course, uh, we know that Satan likes to infiltrate all kinds of things. And that's even true of some places that call themselves Christian churches. Um, right. You know, Jesus warned that wolves in sheep's clothing are going to come among the flock. Uh, so, you know, that that's not something that's unique to Masonry. Um, and there have been a lot of great men who have been members of Masonry. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's worthy of further study. I, I don't think it's wise to issue blanket condemnations. Um, but clearly there is something was happening in the mid to late 1700s where evildoers were trying to seize control of this secretive network that had operations all across Europe. Uh, and I think the, the role of the Illuminati through Freemasonry in the French Revolution really tells us a lot about the dangers of this. Right. The, right. the French Revolution should be exhibit A in the dangers of uh, godlessness and the dangers of revolution. And um you know, and, and I would encourage people to read Proofs of a Conspiracy. In my opinion, it's one of the most important books if you want to understand uh, the, the true Illuminati, because there are a lot of you know, fake uh, 
ideas out there. You know, some people attribute absolutely everything to the Illuminati. I think that's a big mistake. Uh, you know, people start seeing the Illuminati as if the Illuminati was sovereign. The Illuminati mm -hmm. was yeah. omnipotent or, or omnipresent or omniscient. It's like, no, no, this is a group of fallen men. Uh, many of them are, are serving their father, the devil. And so, you know, we don't want to ascribe more power or more influence to them than is appropriate. But it, at the same time, on the other side of the ditch, it, it would be inappropriate to minimize or downplay the right. role that they have played in history, particularly in the last few hundred years. Yeah, well said. So mid to late 1700s, we have the Illuminati, and uh, perhaps we don't fully know exactly how big of an impact they had on early American history. Um, or of course, feel free to expand upon that if you wish. But but what's kind of the next significant um, uh, significant marker in the history of sort of this globalism deep state project well uh there's a, a whole lot that happens between the founding of america where george washington is actually expressing his concerns about the influence of the illuminati and uh you know the the real beginning of a lot of these organizations that we see today are kind of driving this right and there, there's almost uh what 150 years of history almost 200 years of history there um i, I guess at least uh yeah, at least a good solid, uh, you know, 100 years or so there of history. And uh, there's, there's one really good book, uh, To the Victory of the Myths and Monuments, that details some of these societies. There's been a lot of offshoots of the secret society. You know, by nature, it's very hard to track secret societies. Right. But uh, even during the Civil War, um, you know, you had forces on both sides that I believe were, were very much hoping to get America involved in a war, hoping to fundamentally transform America. You know, it, it, it's mm. ludicrous to believe that we couldn't end slavery without slaughtering hundreds of thousands of people. Mm. I mean, that, that's just yeah. uh, frankly silliness. And um, you know, on both sides, there, there were people who uh, I think very much were involved in this. Albert Pike is a really good example, you know, to go back to Freemasonry. Mm. Um, you know, he was a 33rd degree Freemason, an incredibly influential individual. Um, he wrote the book uh, Morals and Dogma, which is a, a very significant work um, that uh, outlines a lot of really troubling things, including uh, tapping into uh, the power of Lucifer and things like this. Mm. And so, um, you know, there was a, a lot of machination. Now, again, by, by their nature, secret societies are difficult to track. Also, in the 1800s, we had another secret society founded in the United States. Uh, this was, I think, in the uh, 1832, if I've got my dates correct, uh, called the Order of Skull and Bones. Uh, and, you know, without being able to prove conclusively through documentary evidence, uh, just, you know, the fruit, to me, there seems that there was almost certainly some link between the Illuminati and, and these subversive ideas and the establishment of the Order of Skull and Bones um, in, uh, in 1832 at Yale University. So this is a group that recruits uh, 15 people each year. And uh, very, very influential people, right? They, they target people who they think are going to go on to do uh, very significant things with or without the help and the, the backing of a secret society. And, um, you know, I, I think this, you can't really understand American history properly without knowing something about the skull and bones. So this was founded, uh, like I said, 1832 by an actual drug dealer, <laughs> William <laughs> Russell, whose family was uh, deeply involved in drug trafficking and the opium trade around the world. And, um, you know, when you look at the rituals that are involved in it, when you look at the obsession with death, when you look at some of the things that uh, its members have promoted it, it to me, uh, there, there almost certainly must be some linkage between 
what we know of these secret societies. But, you know, if, frankly, and, and pure speculation on my part, I wouldn't be able to tell you, hey, this document proves this. But I imagine these secret societies and these things go probably all the way back to the Tower of Babel, all the way back to Nimrod, you know, the, the ancient uh, Babylonian mystery schools. And they've had different manifestations in different societies. And, and you find these very common uh, themes, e even in a lot of the pagan religions, human sacrifice, worship of these different pagan deities. And they have different names, right? If you're in Scandinavia, you've got Tor and Odin. Um, you know, if, if you're in uh, in Mexico or what would later become Mexico, you've got the, the Aztec deities, Quetzalcoatl and things like this. Uh, and there are always these parallels, but even with the ancient Greek and the ancient Roman gods, there are these parallels. So I suspect there's much more going on than meets the eye. But to bring it back to the United States, uh, you know, we have uh, Skull and Bones, Critical Organization, um, there's a number of really good books on this. One that I highly recommend was written by a guy I consider to be one of America's greatest historians, um, Anthony Sutton. Uh, he was at Stanford University, and um, he didn't think a lot about Skull and Bones until uh, uh, my late friend Charlotte Isabel, wonderful lady. She she was a senior advisor to Ronald Reagan on education policy. Uh, her dad and her grandpa were both members. And so when they passed away, she took all the documents that she had in her possession about Skull and Bones and the, the contact list and everything and handed them off to Sutton. And uh, Sutton actually, in his book, he describes this group as a recruiting ground for a global conspiracy to create a one world government. Uh, mm -hmm. He says they use what what he describes as a dialectical process where they they bring about change through conflict. And so they, they try to create a clash of opposites in which they control both of the opposites. So you have a right and a left and then they go to war with each other. And then out of that comes what. Uh, what you're hoping for eventually. And, and you know, we know um, ABC News actually got some secret footage of some of their rituals, very bizarre stuff. They're doing, uh, you know, mock human sacrifices. They lay down in coffins and do, you know, sex acts. They, they kiss skulls. I mean, th these are not the type of things that normal mm. people are engaged in. Uh, and then you look at, uh, you know, some of their members, right? Uh, speaking of clash of opposites, 2004 election, we had George W. Bush on one side who was a member and you had uh, John Kerry on the other side, right? Both mm presidential candidates from both major presidential parties are both members of the same tiny little secret society uh, that, uh, you know, if you do the, the odds on that, I forget the number, but it's incredibly unlikely that you would have something like that. Um, and that's one of many organizations, right? Another organization you had that was created uh, back in the 1800s, the, uh, the Bohemian Grove, the Bohemian Club. Um, yeah, it, it didn't start off necessarily as this big, uh, you know, secret cabal, but it certainly morphed into that uh, over the decades. You now get about 2,500 of the most powerful men on the planet get together. They've got this big 40-foot stone owl. Uh, Richard Nixon, in his autobiography, um, actually said that the most important speech of his entire political career was the one he gave at uh, Skull and Bones. Uh, mm. Every Republican president of the last 100 years, with the exception of Donald Trump, has actually uh, participated in Skull and Bones. Uh, you know, and, and that's I, I don't want to imply here that they're all like, you know, Satan worshiping weirdos. Um, you know, Richard Nixon, if you listen to those tapes that, that got leaked from the White House later, he, he had some really nasty things to say about it. I won't repeat mm -hmm. the language because it's, it's not appropriate, but um, he called it, uh, you know, a, a different word for a, a homosexual gathering. Um, mm -hmm. he, he was not very fond of them, even though in his autobiography, he said that was the most important speech he gave. So um, th there are a lot of these groups like this. And, and I think around the early 1900s, is when their presence really became 
very strongly felt when they really started kind of dominating the policy making apparatus. Um, we had another group that was set up here over 100 years ago called the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, now, this mm -hmm. is not a secret society. They have a website. Right. I, I think it's uh, CFR.org. They publish their membership list. They, you know, they say that they have some members who are not publicly listed, uh, but they have about 5,000 members at any given time. Uh, you know, the Clintons, the Bushes, the, the Cheneys, um, you know, Supreme Court justices, congressional leaders, CEOs of the big media companies. They have corporate members. So the mega banks are, are involved. Um, uh, the guy who runs uh, BlackRock is actually on their board, um, yeah. uh, Larry Fink. Right? So this is a very influential group. You almost never hear about it uh, in the fake media unless they're calling it a think tank uh, and just you know quoting one of its experts as if they're just a smart person who, who knows something. Um, but very very influential group. Uh, and and you know for the for the people who aren't familiar with the CFR. I often call it deep state headquarters in the United States, uh, mm. but it's not a, a purely American innovation. In fact, it has a sister organization. You might even think of it as a mother organization in Britain called the Royal Institute for International Affairs. Uh, and mm. I've got a book behind me here, uh, Tragedy and Hope. Uh, this was written by Carol Quigley. He was uh, one of Bill Clinton's mentors at Georgetown University. Uh, he's a history professor. And uh, one of the things that was very interesting about him is that he actually agreed with most of the goals and and most of what the the deep state if you will to, to use modern terminology was doing and he says so He's, he says i agreed with most of their goals i've been close to them for decades they even allowed me to examine their secret papers for a few years he said my chief difference of opinion is that they think they ought to be secret and i think they ought to be known and so he publishes this book where he kind of spills the beans on a lot of what they're up to he says they're trying to create a global political and economic system that'll be run uh, basically in a feudalist fashion where they will own everything and you can kind of rent, if you will. Um, and, and he actually explains some really profound information about this that often gets lost. He, he traces a lot of it back to Cecil Rhodes. Uh, Cecil Rhodes, for those who aren't familiar, he was a, a big time mining magnate, operated uh, heavily in Southern Africa. In fact, there used to be a country down there named after him, Rhodesia. Um, mm. And of course, he, he worked closely with the Rothschild dynasty, the, the mega banking dynasty. And um, when he passed away, he left this enormous fortune with uh, instructions on what to do with it. And he, he set up these secretive organizations. He talked about concentric rings, right? So you'd have the inner core that very few people knew about, and then you'd have a ring around them, a ring around them. And, and you know, you move outwards and, and you diffuse power that way. And so uh, the Council on Foreign Relations, the, um, the Royal Institute for International Affairs, they have one on continental Europe called the European Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, this is an international network that has an enormous amount of power. And their American branch, the CFR, has absolutely dominated virtually every presidential administration for at least the last three or four generations. Doesn't matter, Republican or Democrat. Uh, Reagan actually denounced them. And then as soon as he got into, into office, he went ahead and appointed a whole bunch of them into his mm. cabinet. Uh, Trump also, he didn't denounce them by name, but he made very clear that that was the type of thing he was going to stop. And even even a handful of CFR members snuck into his administration. Uh, Elaine Chao, uh, who was the uh, transportation secretary, Robert Lighthizer, who was his U.S. trade representative. Um, actually, in my book on the deep state, I, I actually published the list of names when I published it, it was 2021, I believe. I got the whole list of CF, active CFR members that year. So people can look and you'll mm -hmm. see you'll you'll recognize a lot of those names. Um, then there's the Bilderberg group. But, you know, to go back to what I started with, Connor, there's tons of these groups. There's no way we would have time to go through all of them. I, I do right. kind of a roundup of the ones that I think are most important in some of my talks and in my book. 
But I, I think the main thing from a Christian perspective for us to understand is this is just a new manifestation of something that's been going on for a very long time, right? Psalm 2, right. also Psalm 81 delves into this, the, the, the powerful of the world waging war against God. And, and other scriptures go one step further. Right. Um, for example, First uh, John chapter five, verse 19 tells us that uh, we are of God. Right. Speaking of Christians, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Right. Uh, the Apostle Paul in Second Corinthians chapter four, I, I believe it's verse three, says that uh, Satan is the God of this world. Um, and you know, we, we don't want to misunderstand that. It, it, it's easy to misunderstand, especially for an unbeliever. But oh, what Satan's God? Oh no, that, what, what does that mean? Uh, you know, we, we don't want to misunderstand. So we have to have a proper theology on Satan. Satan is a created being, he's not a god, he's not God, he's not a legitimate counterpart right. or rival to God. Um, and and to really understand the nature of Satan, the role of Satan, the, the relationship between Satan and God. I encourage people to read the book of Job. Uh, it's a very difficult book to read. It's a very difficult book to explain to children. But one of the things it shows is that, um, you know, Satan is not operating independently and doing whatever he feels like it, right? He, he continually approaches God and says, hey, you know, hey, what if I do this to him? And, and your God actually ends up have to, ha having to give permission before Satan can do these horrible things to Job. And, you know, I, I understand that's a very hard doctrine for Christians. You mean, are you, are you saying that God is authorizing Satan to do these terrible things? I mean, ultimately, yes, God is sovereign. He can right. and he will destroy Satan. He's going to throw him in the lake of fire before all this is over. But um, but yeah, I mean, you know, that that's the reality that we're living in. And, and uh, the Apostle Paul says he this God of this world, again, referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of them which believe not. And, um, and and so when you see the world through a biblical lens, through what the Bible clearly teaches, you realize that there, there's a battle, there's a spiritual war going on between the, the kingdom of darkness and God's people. And uh, Satan is the, the god of the kingdom of darkness. The, the, the people who are in their unbelief, the people who reject the gospel, whether they're worshiping themselves, whether they're worshiping money, whether they're worshiping uh, you know, Quetzalcoatl or Odin or Tor or whatever. Uh, the Apostle Paul says they, they're, they're worshiping demons, right? They're sacrificing mm, to demons. Yes. And Christians often get uncomfortable with that because like, well, that sounds hateful. But this is what the Bible teaches. And, and so we need to love these people and we need to tell the truth to them um, because eternity is a really long time. And, and if we yeah. do love them, uh, you know, we don't want them going to the lake of fire for eternity. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's comforting when you read Psalm 2, you know, to to uh, remember ultimately that, uh, you know, you know, God is in control and, and he sits on his throne in heaven and laughs. You know? That's right. Verse four, the one in throne in heaven laughs. And then up next after that, he's going to speak to them in his wrath. And you don't want to be around for that. Trust me. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I do. I do think obviously, um, you know, it, it's it's encouraging to to keep that in mind. But, you know, it's obviously also good for us to be aware of kind of how these groups have affected us in the past, as well as how they're affecting us today. So just to kind of recap here. So um, we have groups like the Illuminati kind of forming in the in the 1700s. Uh, around the time of America's founding. Then we have, in the 1800s, we have Skull and Bones. And Skull and Bones, of course, has had its hand in many administrations. 
Then you've got the Council on Foreign Relations in the early 1900s. Same thing. They have their hands on a lot of different presidential administrations. Um, so then, then from there, how does that start to affect our system? W would you, uh, you know, like I said at the beginning, I feel like when I look back at American history, um, from my, uh, you know, sort of layman understanding, it seems like uh, our constitutional order operated fairly uh, as planned out by the founders until a lot of the administrative state kind of came into being under Wilson. Would that be an accurate read? Yeah, I, I think Wilson was really instrumental in moving America away from its founding system. Uh, you know, the Civil War actually played a very, very major role in overthrowing our original constitutional order as well. That's true. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it was very unfortunate because I, I, I do think Abraham Lincoln meant well. Um, you know, I, I think he, he genuinely wanted to preserve the union. Um, and, and uh, clearly the South was genuinely doing some things that were not acceptable, like slavery. Right? I mean, right. um, but, but one of the unfortunate side effects of the war between the states was really the, the destruction of the old constitutional order. You know, the, the 10th Amendment was very, very clear. All powers not delegated to the United States are reserved for the states and the people. Right. But after uh, the Civil War, we passed a series of constitutional amendments, uh, some of them good. Some of them, uh, unfortunately, have been applied in unfortunate ways. You know, the 14th Amendment, there, there are obviously important elements to the 14th Amendment. But uh, one of the things that it did was uh, in, in judicial speak, they call it it incorporated the, the Bill of Rights to the states. And in, in one sense, we, we want our rights to be protected by the state government as well. But in another, it opened this giant loophole for the federal government and the federal courts to come in and start micromanaging what the states were doing. And, um, yeah, and for example, Roe versus Wade, you know, they, they found this right to privacy in the penumbras of the Constitution. And then because uh, the 14th Amendment incorporated the rights from the Constitution and the states, they said, well, every, in every state, you have a right to murder your baby. Now, obviously, this is a, a total abomination, a, a total mis interpretation of what the clear text of the constitution says but some of these things that crept in during the civil war enabled this kind of thinking this kind of federal uh, supremacism outside the bounds of the powers that are, were originally delegated now wilson was uh, hugely significant uh, after world war one very things started accelerating very rapidly um you know after World War One, they tried to set up the League of Nations. Uh, they, they wanted that to be kind of the nucleus of the future one world government. And uh, if you look at what happened in the U.S. Senate to that effort, they got creamed. I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think almost no senators voted in favor of joining the league. It may, it may have been none. Uh, you know, I, uh, I'd have to go back and, and look at the exact numbers. But the Senate voted overwhelmingly against any participation in the League of Nations. And so they started getting antsy. Uh, that, that's actually one of the reasons why they set up the Council on Foreign Relations. Is that we're, we're never going to be able to drag these Americans into the one world system unless we do something about this. You know, they, they, they deride it as isolationism and blah, blah, blah. Um, right. You know, these are just smear terms. But uh, so the Council on Foreign Relations is born uh, early 1920s. And right away, sets about accumulating more and more power. Uh, during Wilson, we also had this horrific thing happen to our country, which was the establishment of the Federal Reserve System. Right. Um, you know, 1910, you had this secret meeting of mega bankers and certain political leaders like Senator Nelson Aldrich on Jekyll Island, not too far from where I'm sitting right now. And um, they met on Jekyll Island and they plotted to basically enslave America to a central bank. And uh, just like Satan would be expected to do, right, the father of lies, they, they, when they tried to push this through Congress, they said, this is how we're going to rein in the bankers with the Federal Reserve Act. And oh, my goodness, 
nothing could have further empowered the bankers more than the Federal Reserve Act. So it just it's what they always do. They just completely lie to us. They told us this was going to rein in those evil bankers. In fact, it basically gave the bankers a cartel monopoly on the printing of currency, the issuance of credit. Uh, it was a horrible, horrible disaster for our country. And I, and I think that cancer that was born with the Federal Reserve Act, that was finally passed in 1913 uh, that with, with Wilson's help, of course, uh, that helped them accomplish the rest of their goals. And then things started happening in rapid succession, right? Within a generation after we got the Federal Reserve, we've got the Great Depression. And, and I mean, today, even the leaders of the Federal Reserve will admit that the Federal Reserve accidentally created the Great Depression. Now, if you believe that was an accident, I got some nice beachfront property in Nebraska. Talk to me later. Um, they knew exactly what they were doing. They, they, they flooded the country with far more currency than they should have issued based on how much gold they actually had. That caused interest rates to go down. That caused what we call the roaring 20s. You know, everybody was feeling good. Businesses were expanding. People were buying into the stock market. People were borrowing to buy into the stock. So it, it set the stage for the disaster that was the Great Depression. Then they used the Great Depression to radically expand the size and scope of government, to ban private ownership of gold, to, to bring in the kind of great society nonsense where the federal government expanded into into every area of our life. I mean, if you look at the list of bureaucracies that were born um, out of the Great Depression, it, it just, it's mind blowing. Um, virtually every federal agency you can think of, other than, you know, just a handful of Department of Treasury, Department of State, Department of War, I mean, these were all born out of, out of this crazy time period. Uh, and it was a disaster for our country. So then by the time they got to World War II, I, I think they had sufficiently take, taken control of enough of the levers of power where after World War II, it was a breeze to get us involved in the United Nations, which uh, you know, I, I believe is the next diabolical plot to try to create a one world government. They couldn't get it with the League of Nations. Well, by the time they got around to the UN, it was uh, very, very easy to do. And since then, it's just been a rapid succession of uh, uh, basically taking over the United States, uh, turning us against the foundations of our country, and even before the foundations of our country, the very real Christian heritage that we have um, uh, leading up to the establishment of America. I mean, people don't realize how fast this happened because we're now, what, three, four generations deep into the indoctrination through the public school system. We've got totally fake media. So a lot of this history has just been completely lost or even worse, it's been framed as like this progress. So it's, it's progress that we now have right. the government doing farm subsidies. It's progress that the government now uh, will take care of your medical stuff and your retirement and, and all this stuff uh, instead of being seen for what it is, a, a giant tragedy that flies in the face of uh, the Bible, that flies in the face of our Constitution, that flies in the face of everything that our nation was set up to stand for, which was individual liberty. Um, and, and of course, Christianity. So, um, so yeah, I think Wilson is is uh, around the time where we really had a, a sea change in America, where these evildoers were finally able to so capture the levers of power that um, you know the the church was almost marginalized. I mean, we, we were still allowed to be, but uh, you know, the the real influence of Christianity and the governance of this country has been rapidly waning since that time. Hmm. Yeah. And then, of course, Wilson really handed things off to FDR. And you've kind of already outlined some of the things that happened underneath FDR. Um, but of course, uh, you know, a lot of what we've been talking about is the bureaucracies that we've created here. But of course, the actual um, the actual uh, world order really changed after World War Two as well, which really, uh, you know, I'm not going to say it created a, a, a global uh, one world system, but it did create an American empire that we were not supposed to ever be. Um, 
And as a result, I think that's really allowed a lot of these globalist ideas to gain more traction um, ever since ever since uh, World War II and in this new uh, liberal international order. And of course, um, I, I would I would say from there, you know, we have we have things like Eisenhower's speech, um, you know, talking about uh, uh, about uh, basically how we need to be careful of, of sort of this bureaucratic state that could uh, ultimately run things from behind the scenes that's unelected and, and unaccountable. And uh, w- would you say from there, it, like, w- would you probably point the the next milestone towards maybe like the 60s and, and LBJ and some of those, uh, some of some of the acts that happened underneath like the sexual revolution and things like that? Well, I, I would even go back to Eisenhower and say he played a big role. But, you know, let, let's stop at World War Two real quick. Out of World War Two, I think you're exactly right. Uh, what it did was it set the stage for global government. Um, you know, out of the ashes of World War Two was born not just the United Abominations uh, or the UN, uh, but also the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund and uh, the, what was called at the time the European Coal and Steel Community, which they eventually expanded and built on until it became what we call today the European Union. Right, That was born in the ashes of World War Two. So World War Two really set the stage for uh, the, the kind of the world order, as you described, the international uh, liberal world order that we're dealing with right now. Uh, and, and I believe Eisenhower was actually a critical player in this. Uh, there's mm. a very good book out there called The Politician. And mm. I got attacked a lot when it came out. It was about Eisenhower. And, you know, we all know the quote from Eisenhower. You know, we got to guard against the rise of the military industrial complex and right. disastrous power. Uh, he gave a lot of really prescient warnings. He talked about kind of this uh, scientific technocratic elite that would right. seek to govern our life. And I mean, boy, did that sound like a prophecy, right? A, a, a true prophecy. Look at where we are today. But um, there was a lot. There was a really dark side to Eisenhower as well that unfortunately has really been swept under the rug. Um, in the book, The Politician, you, you read about some of these things. Uh, operation Keelhaul was an interesting one. This, this was an operation that Eisenhower helped lead where they rounded up millions of Soviet refugees, uh, many of whom had actually fought alongside Americans uh, against Nazi Germany. And uh, they deported them back to Stalin, knowing full well that they were going to be tortured and probably murdered, uh, maybe sent to Siberia to work a few years until they died of exhaustion. Um, that, that was a, a monstrous thing. Uh, also, the betrayal of the uh, Chinese government of Chiang Kai-shek, uh, who fought again alongside Americans in World War II against the Japanese. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek was a very decent man. He was a Christian. Um, he believed in kind of the American model of government. He sacrificed an enormous number of his men to fight the Japanese alongside of uh, my grandpa, actually, and and many of our grandpas uh, in World War II. And um, we didn't just turn our backs on him. We actively betrayed him. Uh, People like um, Secretary of State and Secretary of War George Marshall, who worked closely with with SDR, or uh, excuse me, with uh, Eisenhower, um, he actually bragged in uh, in a memo that with uh, the stroke of his pen, he disarmed Chiang Kai-shek's men. They, they actually put an arms embargo on this guy, an ally of the United States. And, and through that, they brought Chairman Mao to power. Uh, Eisenhower helped bring um, Castro to power in Cuba. What kind of madness is this? And then once it happened, they said, oh, nobody ever would have guessed he was a communist. Are you kidding me? The U.S. ambassador <laughs> to Cuba was telling us he was a communist. Uh, Earl T. Smith, he actually wrote a book on this called The Fourth Floor about how the State Department completely ignored all the warnings that Castro was a communist. They completely ignored the warnings from the U.S. ambassador in Mexico. Um, it, it, actually, he concluded in his Senate testimony, Castro 
came to power as a direct result of the actions of the U.S. government. We betrayed another one of our allies, uh, Fulencio Batista, maybe, maybe not the greatest president in the world, but, uh, you know, a, a saint compared to Fidel Castro, a mass murdering maniac. Um, so we betrayed our ally. We put a, a mass murdering communist in power and then said, whoops, who could have guessed that the guy was a communist? Well, it's because the, the New York Times, uh, to go back to the Council on Foreign Relations, their propagandist, uh, Herbert Matthews, uh, was telling Americans that Fidel Castro was an anti-communist freedom fighter, that he was the George Washington of Latin America. I mean, anybody <laughs> with a brain should have looked at that guy and said, no, he's a revolutionary communist. He's backed by the Soviet Union. Um, and even the relationship with the Soviet Union, right? World War II did something else very significant as well. It built the Soviet empire to a point where it could legitimately challenge the United States, as long as our, our government secretly continued financing it and sending it technology and all the rest of it. Uh, this is one of the most horrific stories ever that people don't even know about. Uh, you know, to go back to the historian I mentioned earlier, uh, Anthony Sutton, he did this incredible series of books. One was called Wall Street and the Rise of Hitler. Very, very good. Talks mm -hmm. about how some of these same deep staters helped finance the rise of Adolf Hitler. Uh, George uh, W.'s grandpa, George W. Bush's grandpa, uh, Senator Prescott Bush, was actually busted under the trading with the Enemy Act for, for Union Bank helping to finance the Nazi regime. Rockefellers were, were some of the big financiers of Joseph Mengele and some of these horrific uh, eugenics and, and race policies. So you've got that. And then he's got a, another book, Anthony Sutton does, called Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution, where he talks about how the Bolshevik Revolution was basically bought and paid for by the very same deep staters on Wall Street, these mega bankers here in the United States. And he uses State Department documents and corporate records to make a rock solid case. And one of the things that happened during World War II, and, and this is, again, something that Americans really aren't familiar with anymore, um, we built the Soviet war machine. I mean, we built not we didn't just give them weapons. We built factories so they could build more weapons. We built factories so they could build tanks. We built factories for them so they could build ships and missiles. We gave them everything they would need to create nuclear weapons. Um, at the time, the, the U.S. government was foolishly telling Americans he's Uncle Joe. Right. Stalin is right. Uncle <laughs> Joe. And again, we come back to The New York Times and, uh, and their dishonest propaganda. Walter Durante. Uh, this was a New York Times reporter, their their Moscow correspondent, bureau chief, whatever. And and he was actually covering up the Soviet genocide of Ukrainians. Um, the, the, it's called the Holodomor. They, they literally exterminated almost 10 million Ukrainians through deliberate starvation, which I think they're, they're now trying to do to the world. Give it another few years. We'll see if they can pull it off. But um, the New York Times covered that up. They got a Pulitzer Prize for covering up that genocide. And, and with that backdrop, the U.S. government was telling us that Joseph Stalin, one of the worst mass murdering savages to ever walk on this planet, was our friend. He's Uncle Joe. We need to give him more money. We need to help him out. Uh, I mean, absolutely preposterous. And, and our military leaders understood this. General Patton. In fact, I believe they murdered General Patton specifically mm. because he was so dedicated to exposing Stalin and this barbarous Soviet regime. Um, it, it's It's just horrible what the U.S. government did. And when you look at the communist conspiracy, uh, I, I don't believe it can be seen in, in a vacuum. Right? You look at Karl Marx. Karl Marx was funded and, and supported by the League of the Just, a kind of a secretive society that gave him the money and even some of the ideas. Um, then all through history, you see the very, very powerful forces in the United States aiding and abetting communism. You look at what happened in Hungary. You look at the takeover of Eastern Europe. Why in the world did the U.S. government allow Stalin to enslave half of Europe after World War II? That was insane, right? How could you possibly justify that? And yet they did. Um, and, and it goes back to what we talked about a little bit earlier about this dialectical process for change, where change requires 
uh, conflict and conflict requires a clash of opposites. So uh, I, I do believe that a lot of this is deliberate. I don't believe that everybody involved in it necessarily has a full understanding of what they're up to. But hey, if their God is Satan, it's uh, not very difficult for their God to manipulate them into doing what he wants them to do. Hmm. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and I mean, you you laid out a lot there because obviously so much happened during that era of World War Two. I mean, there's there's so many moving parts. I mean, the reality it was a world war, you know, there <laughs> it's it's uh, uh, there's a, a ton of different battlefronts and there's a ton of different uh, opportunities for some of these bad actors to take a foothold and take more power for themselves. So, so what would you say is kind of the history of how we got from um, the new international uh, liberal world order that happened after World War II to kind of the modern day? What are the sort of the significant steps um, that happened in between? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, you, you mentioned the sexual revolution briefly. I think that was a big part of it, right? And it goes back to this goal of destroying the family. God ordained the family. And so there has right. been an effort for a very long time to uh, not just undermine that institution, but just discredit it and destroy it. Um, and I think the sexual revolution was a giant leap forward, uh, no pun intended, in that process. Um, encouraging promiscuity, uh, encouraging so-called sexual liberation. Uh, and, and now we've seen, you know, the steps that came after that. Then we saw the, the homosexual revolution. Now we're seeing the, the transgender revolution. Right? So the, the homosexual revolution is, oh, well, uh, you know, we, we just don't want to be criminalized. Right. So the Supreme Court struck down sodomy laws in the early 2000s in a case against Texas. And then from there, we went very rapidly to, well, now now we want to be married. Right. And of course, uh, God created marriage. This isn't something that like we as people can just go around uh, redefining or undefining. This is a right. divine institution. You can call whatever you want a marriage. It doesn't make it a marriage. And so they say, oh, we just want to be married. And then right after that, well, now we just want children. And so I was like, well, you know, yeah, two dads. Yeah, you know, it's all right. No big deal. Uh, and then now with the, the transgender revolution, now it's like, well, what do you mean, dad? What do you mean, mom? That, that's a birthing person, right? Uh, right. So, so there is no more any more justification for a nuclear family. There's no more male and female now. Gender is a spectrum. That was just what you were assigned at birth. You could choose to be whatever you want today. So what we're seeing here is the deliberate destruction of the family. So sexual revolution, homosexual revolution, transgender revolution, and now end goal has always been the destruction of the family, not just for its own sake. And of course, its own sake is important, but also because the forces of evil understand that the family is the building block of civilization. It is the most important institution. It precedes civil government. It precedes church government. It is the the, the unit in which love is most truly expressed uh, in this fallen world. Um, and, and so the, the attack on the family is much broader than just trying to undermine the family. Uh, and, and there are many different special interest groups that see from their perspective a benefit in this, right? The, the, those who want to brainwash and, and uh, take over the minds of children, understand that if they can pry them loose from the protective umbrella of their parents, it becomes much easier to teach them whatever madness, whatever nonsense you want. They, you know, they think of them as a blank slate that they can just write on. Right. So that was, a, that was a, a critical component of this. Uh, now, the regionalization process, which has been going on for really since after World War II, is very significant. And that's been accelerating dramatically over the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, we now see virtually every nation in the world uh, wrapped up in some European Union style 
transnational government. So the Africans mm -hmm. right now are having an African union imposed on them. Uh, in South America, they're working on the union of South American states. Uh, Putin is right now building the Eurasian Union, basically bringing together the, the former Soviet states. Uh, Southeast Asia, they've got the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. They've got the one with you know India and Bangladesh and Pakistan, Nepal, all these. Uh, they've got in the, in the Indo-Pacific, they've got Australia, New Zealand, all these countries coming together under one umbrella. And Henry Kissinger actually outlined this process in his book, World Order. Uh, kind of refining what Zivnu Brzezinski had started outlining even uh, two decades before that. This idea that you can't just jump straight into a one world system. You've got to first, uh, uh, the way Henry Kissinger put it, you have to establish a concept of order within the various regions and then relate these regional orders to one another. And so the EU is kind of the, the flagship example. And uh, incidentally, the EU is helping to finance a lot of these other building blocks. Even here in, in North America, they're building what they call the North American Union. Um, we've got documents on this back in 2007, um, mm. WikiLeaks obtained a, a document from the U.S. ambassador to, to Canada. Uh, I think it was Paul Carlucci, I think was his name, uh, talking about how, how can they get around the American and the Canadian constitutions and they, their ultimate goal. And they said it was a North American parliament and North American currency. They've already got North American kangaroo courts. They call them tribunals. They were originally set up under NAFTA. Uh, they strengthened them and expanded their jurisdiction under the USMCA, which uh, Trump's uh, CFR um, trade director uh, was responsible for. So all over the world, you see this regionalization process. Uh, Klaus Schwab, the founder of the World Economic Forum, talks about it some in his book on the Great Reset. He explains that um, you know people are really upset about globalization after COVID. And so he, he talks about an in-between solution, which he calls regionalization. And, and the solution is to the problem of national sovereignty. Right? Right. Uh, another big one that we're seeing is uh, the mass migration, which, of course, has accelerated in recent years, but it's been going on for some time now. And, and it's at the point now where you, know, you, you almost can't recognize a lot of major cities. Brits are a minority in London. Uh, Swedes are a minority in many of their major cities. Germans are a minority in many of their major cities. Uh, Belgians are a tiny minority in Brussels. Um, and, and this is going to be across the whole Western world uh, within maybe a generation, maybe two depending on how fast this accelerates, right? The World Economic Forum is telling us that a billion climate refugees will be coming soon. Um, and they're not messing around, right? They say you must do a better job of integrating them and welcoming them. And so it, there are several objectives, I guess, that that helps advance. One is the decimation of the nation state. Uh, you know, and, and I witnessed this firsthand. I, I spent a lot of years living in Europe. I grew up in Latin America, lived in Africa. Uh, so I've, I've seen a lot of this firsthand. What happens is you know, these countries, they get so overrun with foreigners. You, you have European countries where more than a third of the population, sometimes even significantly more, is now foreign born. Now they're, they're from the Middle East or they're Muslims. They're coming from Africa, whatever. Um, you know, once it reaches a certain point, you look around you and you say, wait a minute here. Like, I don't have anything in common with any of these people. We don't even speak the same language. Like, what? Why do we have these arbitrary lines on a map called national borders? I mean, we're, we're just all one human family. Uh, and we need to remember, and, and I think that has a superficial appeal to it, but we need to remember God is the one who divided mankind into nation states. And he says right. that specifically multiple times in the scripture. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8. It's in Acts chapter 17. He made from one man all of mankind and divided them up. And, and he, he, um, he, he even uh, determined a lot boundaries of uh, and periods for their habitation so where their borders would be and how long they would exist this was god's design that we would have nation states another major function that it's serving is the the de-christianization of what was once known as christendom right uh there was a period for several centuries where virtually every square inch on this planet was governed by 
professed Christian governments, right? Uh, during the, the period of uh, colonial expansion, what they today deride as uh, colonialism and, and imperialism <laughs> and things like this, uh, virtually every square inch on this planet, with a handful of exceptions, was governed uh, by professing Christian. You know, was the King of England a, a true Christian? Was the King of Spain? A, I, I don't know. But at least they claimed that Jesus Christ was Lord. Right. There was a and, definite a nominal Christianity, at least. Right. And, and, and that had cultural elements, too. Right. The, right. the family, the system of morality, you, you know, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal. Right. Uh, and, and how that manifests itself in every area of society. Uh, and so what we're watching now is the reversal of that process. Now we're watching paganism and, and Islam and, and other religions that are hostile to Christianity flood into what used to be known as Christendom. Um, and they're not even shy about this. Right? I, I lived in Sweden for many years. And while I was living there, I, I, I saw this happen. Uh, the, the lesbian bishop, uh, you know, bishop, I should put it in air quotes, uh, who runs the, uh, the Church of Sweden, uh, which is the biggest Lutheran denomination in the world now, totally apostate, but still the biggest Lutheran denomination in the world, said we ought to take down the crosses from the churches so that the, the Muslims won't be offended. We ought to build prayer <laughs> rooms in our churches so they can pray, uh, you know, facing Mecca five times a day. I mean, like they're not even hiding anymore. They're like openly de-Christianizing society and they're using the mass migration as the pretext. Uh, it's at the point now, I mean, e even when I was a kid, you know, I, I lived in Switzerland, I lived in France. And, when I was a kid, every major European city had a Christmas market and they were beautiful. Um, and, and, you know, with nativity scenes and things like that. I mean, until recently, every classroom in Italy had a cross on it, right? Public school classrooms. Uh, now they had to take all that down. They're now talking about taking down the crosses from the Swiss flag, from the Scandinavian flags, because that'll offend the Muslims, right? And so this happened really, really quickly. And so even the cultural element, you know, a lot of these nations had, had uh, long since become post-Christian, but they still have the Christian culture. They still had the reminder in front of them every day when they walk through town, you know, big, beautiful church that their ancestors built with a big cross on the top. And, uh, you know, they still had that constant reminder. Now that is rapidly going away. Uh, and it's in big part because of this mass migration. And there are many, many other things like that that are happening. And, you know, people take them as kind of separate issues that are unrelated. They're not. They're all part of this broader global process that is coming about where the forces of evil are trying to create a one world diabolical economic and political system uh, whereby Christianity will be all but eliminated and uh, the free market will be all but eliminated. Uh, things like liberty will be all but eliminated. And, um, you know, a lot of different people get sucked into this movement, not fully understanding the implications. And I, I went to very elite uh, private schools with kind of the future managers of this system. And, uh, you know, I, I can't tell you how many people I grew up with still believe to this day that the UN is going to be the savior of humanity and stuff. And, and, and they don't believe that because they think they're being evil. They believe that because they were taught all their life that, you know, nations cause wars, religion causes war. Right. Could, imagine there's no nations. Imagine there's no religion. Then there'd be nothing to kill or die for. So people internalize this stuff uh, and they think they're doing good. Uh, the Bible talks about a time when they're going to be chopping off our heads and killing us and thinking that they're doing God a service. Um, so, you know, I, I think a lot of these people truly, genuinely believe that what they're doing is right and that it's good. Uh, and that's because they're not looking at the world through a biblical lens and they're not looking at the world through the lens of he who created it. So, yeah, right. Yeah. And I mean, when it comes to eschatology, you know, I've had I've had many different guests on this podcast and, and there's a there's a wide range of, you know, eschatology um within a lot of the guests that I've had on the podcast and as well as there's just a rising um, resurgence of post-millennialism. And, you know, I, I honestly hope that post-millennialism, excuse me, post-millennialism is true in a way because, uh, you know, it's such a, 
it's such a more positive vision for the future. But regardless of what your eschatology is, I think it's important to recognize the state that we're currently in, because whether you are our are historical premillennial or you are postmillennial, uh, regardless, we still do have this this sort of conglomerate of uh, of these these powerful individuals that are trying to usher in this one world currency, this one world governance. Um, so uh, first, I guess uh, I'm going to ask Alex, uh, what is sort of their end game? And then after you explain that, I'd like to maybe talk through some of um, maybe just name some names of people that are currently in office or people that are, are say, running for president, things like that, that are individuals that we need to be weary of. Um, pray for, of course, their repentance and their salvation, um, but uh, but also make sure that we are um, not voting these people into seats of power. Yeah, uh, excellent questions all. And uh, I, I typically don't spend um, a lot of time talking publicly about eschatology. I, I do have my own views. I certainly hope <laughs> post-millennialism is correct. But, um, you know, I, w- what I say when people pin me down is I, I'm a pan-millennial because uh, it's all going to pan out in the end. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? so, that's that's um, where I'm at. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, and, and I think all Christians, and, and I know people have really strong feelings about this, but I think all Christians need to approach this subject with just a profound sense of humility with with a really deep sense of our own inadequacy because the reality is none of us understand this in in detail Uh, in fact I, i don't think god intended for us to understand perfectly what was coming because if he did, he would have put it in much more clear language. It will make sense when we get there. We'll look back and we'll say, oh, that's what that meant. Okay, I get it now. But uh, I think looking forward at it, um, you know, I, I think we really need to approach the subject with a massive amount of humility. Right. Um, and, and, you know, I, I love my premillennial brothers and I love my postmillennial brothers and I love my amillennial brothers. You know, I, 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 we're all, um, you know, I, I think as long as you're within the orthodox of, you know, the, the Christian tradition, the Christian faith, uh, you know, you're my brother, you're my sister, regardless of whether you think Christ is coming next week or, or you know, the whole world is going to be Christian, whatever you think on those subjects. You know, I, I think we can have nice intellectual debates about them. Absolutely. Um, but the things that we do see clearly in Scripture and uh, through our own observation right now, uh, Satan is roaming about uh, like a lion seeking whom he may devour. So what is his objective? Well, he wants to devour as many of us as he possibly can. He hates God with a passion, but of course he is not capable of hurting God or approaching God. As a, uh, he just has to settle for waging war on us. Right? Right. He has to settle for waging war on God's people and on the church and for um, for devouring uh, the unbelievers, uh, for keeping them in bondage to their sin uh, and keeping them in darkness. And so uh, what is his objective? Well, I think put simply, he wants to take as many with him into the lake of fire as he possibly can. He knows mm-hmm. his days are short. He knows his time is numbered and um, time is short. Days are numbered. Sorry. And um, and so he wants to do as much damage as he can. Uh, he wants to uh, contradict God on every point. Right. So God ordained family. He wants to smash family. God ordained nations. He wants to smash nations. God ordained property. He wants to smash private property. Everything that God teaches, he wants to come against. Uh, And he wants us to join us to join him in this rebellion against uh, the sovereign creator of the heavens and the earth. And of course, that's a very bad idea, right? You need to repent right now, lay down your weapons, surrender, uh, because it's not going to end well for you otherwise. 
Uh, so th those are Satan's goals. You know, I think very clearly he wants to set up a one world totalitarian uh, political and economic system, a one world government, if you will, in which uh, ultimately humans will be all but annihilated. Those who remain will be actively serving Satan uh, in total and complete slavery uh, to sin, to evil, to, to everything horrific imaginable. Uh, you know how far he'll get with that i yeah we can have a, a discussion about that i think kind of right. like with the tower of babel i i, I don't think that the tower is actually going to succeed in getting to heaven to, to kind of borrow a, an analogy it's, it's not going to make it that high but there will be a lot of damage and a lot of devastation between now and whenever we get to this end point so uh, so that's what satan wants uh you're right we do need to be praying for repentance you know i i often tell people because a, a lot of people look at these evil doers and they say wow they're so evil you know how could they be so evil you know what before we came to know christ we were in the same boat as them headed to the same destination uh, for the same reason right, right. um and, and so I, I think we need to have some sympathy and some pity for these people who are deluded um, we're all capable of it absolutely and yeah. um and, and you know and, and I, I think when you look back at the psalms you see some of these uh, imprecatory prayers that david prayed you know, some of them you, you read them and you're like almost shocked like, really crush their crush their teeth really can, can we pray that and, and yeah i i don't know uh, exactly when that's appropriate I, I i do think we ought to be praying for the repentance of these evildoers imagine the testimony that they would have you know coming out of that wicked wicked system uh, and into the light. Imagine the testimony that they could share. Imagine uh, how many souls they could bring to the Lord. Um, so, so I think we should be praying about that. Uh, some of the names, um, you know, I, I always say again, the, the main thing to understand is that their commander in chief is Satan. Uh, the names are less important. I, I, I do try to focus more on organizations than specific individuals. But some of the obvious names that come to mind, uh, you know, the Rothschild dynasty has been uh, doing evil for hundreds of years now. Um, even their apologists admit some of this, you know, uh, Niall Ferguson, uh, kind of the court historian of the establishment, if you will. Um, he, he did a book on the Rothschilds and, and he said that they actually decided the outcome of the Napoleonic Wars by putting their financial might behind Britain. Like, imagine the power of this one family that could decide the outcome of a war between the two most powerful governments then existing on the face of the planet. I mean, that's power. I mean, that, that, that is right. power beyond what any of us can fathom. So the Rothschild family, uh, you know, people look at George Soros like, wow, he, he's so powerful. Yeah, he's pretty powerful. Guess where he got his seed money to start up his fund? Uh, yeah, it was the Rothschilds, right? Uh, true story. Um, he set up his... Um, his fund in Switzerland with Rothschild money made like thousands of percent return, like totally outrageous. You know, that doesn't happen. It's, sorry, guys. He's not that great a businessman. Uh, we do know he was convicted of insider trading in a French court. So I suspect that that's how a lot of these guys make their fortunes. Say, hey, we'll, we'll make you rich beyond your wildest dreams. And then all you got to do is give 90 percent of what you, what we give you basically back to the cause of enslaving humanity and destroying the earth. And so I think George Soros is a good example of that. Mm. Um, Bill Gates of hell is another obvious example, right? The, the Rockefeller crime family. Uh, these are incredibly wicked people. Uh, David Rockefeller, uh, you know, he, he led actually a lot of these organizations. He set up the Trilateral Commission with Zbigniew Brzezinski, another one of the organizations. I didn't mention the Trilateral Commission, but very, very powerful deep state organization. It's been in operation now for uh, several generations. Um, served as chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations for a long time. So these are some of the names. Uh, there are a lot of names that, um, you know, you, you don't hear much. And the Rothschild is, is one of those names. You really don't hear 
too much about the Rothschilds. Uh, certainly, I think uh, this Pope uh, Bergoglio, Pope Francis, is a big part of this. Uh, I mean, just look at the fruit. Look at what he's teaching. I, I've interviewed Catholic priests who've said this guy is teaching doctrines of demons. So it was when your own priests <laughs> are saying you're teaching doctrines of demons, uh, something pretty, pretty bad is going on there. Uh, so, you know, I, I think Pope Francis is deeply involved in this effort. Uh, you know, he, he was there when they created Agenda 2030, which the UN referred to as the master plan for humanity. Um, and, and those are some of the names that come to mind. Um, I do have a whole chapter in my book where I list uh, some of the money men behind this. Um, but, you know, most of the people that we see in the media, most of the people that they tell us that we're allowed to hate, like George Soros and stuff, uh, they're far enough down the pyramid where, like, even if humanity ever, you know, got regained control of a government or something and prosecuted these people, I mean, George Soros could be thrown in prison and this whole operation would continue to move. Bill right. Gates could be thrown into prison or he could drop dead tomorrow and this whole thing would continue going on. Uh, you know, I, I tell people Satan will raise up 10 more idiots to take their place, right? So mm -hmm. uh, the, the individuals are less important than than the spiritual, right? And I, I always go to Ephesians chapter six and there are a lot of Bible verses that, that teach clearly the nature of the spiritual conflict that we find ourselves in, but none, I think, as clear as Ephesians chapter six, where uh, the Apostle Paul explains that we, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, right? Uh, George Soros and, and Kissinger and Rockefeller and Brzezinski and Rothschild, um, you know, yeah, they're bad guys. Yeah, they're, they're serving Satan, but it's ultimately they're flesh and blood. We're not up against flesh and blood. We're up against powers, against principalities, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Um, we're dealing with demonic forces from the pit of hell. Um, in Daniel chapter uh, 10, there's a really interesting, you know, battle scene there. It, it talks about the Prince of Persia, this, I, I guess, a demon um, that was overseeing, you know, Persia and, and um, Daniel prays, you know, God, God dispatches this arch archangel, uh, Michael, and they have this battle. Uh, so, you know, this is the kind of the realm that we don't necessarily see, but that is there. And um, a, a lot of these human beings that are actively involved in this, um, you know, they're, they're serving entities that are higher than human beings, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to, you know, because the 2024 elections coming up right now, obviously there's a lot of names being thrown around and there are so many people that don't have a shot at being president that are in the presidential race. So I won't, I won't bother with some of those individuals, but what, what is your thoughts since you do have a lot of this insider knowledge that so many people don't have at least you have a much better understanding maybe some people might have generalities but what is your take on donald trump what's your take on Ron DeSantis, vivek ramaswamy um i'll just stick with those three for now because they're kind of the uh the the names that at least the grassroots uh really seem to support maybe some establishment characters might be in there but uh, uh those three kind of have the the popularity of the GOP base. So what's your, what's your take on them? Yeah, that's a good question. And, uh, you know, I, I know that no matter how I answer this question, people are going to be mad at me and that's okay. For I'm, sure. I'm yeah, I've given you a hard to, task. <laughs> right? yeah. I'm just going to do my best to, to tell things as I see them. And, you know, and I recognize, um, I am a, a, a human being. Uh, my analysis could absolutely be mistaken. Uh, you know, and I'll preface all of this by saying the Bible tells us, don't put your trust in princes. Don't put your trust. Absolutely. In put your trust in God. If, if you think, that some president, some politician is going to save you. You're putting your hope and your trust in the wrong place. And so, you know, with that out of the way, more. yeah. And I think that's important because, uh, 
you know, God tells us specifically, my kingdom is not of this world. And so, right. you know, whoever's the U.S. president, he's not going to save you and, and all the rest of it. Uh, right. We may lose our country and, uh, you know, we shouldn't lose hope because we lose our I hope we won't. I, I want my children to grow up in a free, prosperous uh, America. But I think we need to be comfortable with the fact that that may not be possible. So sure. um, I'll just take each one of those one by one. Sure. Uh, Donald Trump. Uh, I think Donald Trump genuinely opposed these evildoers. Um, I, I don't think he fully grasped the nature of what he was up against. I think he thought of this as kind of like a corrupt swamp rather than a, a diabolical cesspool. Um, and, and so I think he was genuinely shocked when he won the election and, and started realizing what a snake pit he had entered into. Um, and he didn't know where the landmines were buried. He didn't know that, uh, you know, if you're a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, chances are very good you're you're working um, at, at uh, for for hostile purposes to what Donald Trump would have been working for. Uh, and so I think he made some really significant mistakes uh, during his administration. Some of his appointments were very very. Um, dangerous, we could say. Uh, he appointed some members of the CFR. He appointed people who worked closely with the Rothschilds. He appointed some people who'd been uh, regulars at Bilderberg meetings. Um, so he appointed some people who weren't great. Um, Robert, I mentioned a few of them, Robert Lighthizer, Elaine Chow, uh, you know, a, a handful of the examples. Um, I, I think maybe the single biggest catastrophe was what happened with the, the COVID stuff. And, you know, I won't go into too much depth. I don't want to get you kicked off of uh, any of your platforms. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I frankly believe that the American people are owed an apology for that. Um, yeah. and, and I say that as someone who was personally affected. Uh, you know, my dad took the shot and his heart mm. stopped after uh, 36 hours. And so I'll, I'll leave it at that to avoid getting you in uh, in any trouble on the platforms. But uh, I, I would like to see an apology for some of that. You know, you never should have trusted Fauci, never should have trusted Burks. Those people should have not just been fired, but prosecuted. They, they belong mm. in prison um, if we're feeling generous. Um, but with that said, I, I think he learned a lot from his first term. And yeah. <laughs> I think a second term would be really interesting. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I know a lot of his inner circle and they're, they're good, good people. Uh, and, you know, they learned a lot. Uh, and, and, and I think one of the reasons that I, that I believe and, and I gave a talk on this right after he was elected, uh, making the case, because a lot of smart people were saying, you know, he must be controlled opposition. There's no way they would have right. become president. Right. Uh, so I gave a talk. Uh, I believe it was 2017, might have been 2018, where I, I, I laid out a, a, like an hour. It was a very popular talk. It got, I think, uh, over a million views on, on YouTube. I'm not sure if they've taken that down now, yet, or or or. or or not. But uh, I still stand by everything I said there. Uh, I, I think the evidence is that he was not part of the system. He, um, you know, he got manipulated by them. In some cases, he comes out of the business world, he was used to people just doing what they're told, because that's what you do in business, you know, the political arena is very different, uh, as he discovered. Um, and, and you can tell by how vicious they have been against him and his people that they were really nervous. Uh, you look at what they did mm -hmm. to General Flynn, you look at what they did to Roger Stone. You look at what they did to uh, Peter Navarro. You look at what they did to Steve Bannon. You look at what they did to Mike Lindell. Uh, and you start seeing this pattern here. This is not normal, right? Clinton was surrounded by criminals. And they're all still running around freely. Um, it's, it's something really fishy is going on with that. So uh, we'll leave Donald Trump there. Um, I, I, I like Trump. Uh, I, I have some serious disagreements with him on, on a few issues. I was very dismayed to hear him say that Florida made a mistake by uh, banning the slaughter of babies. 
um, yeah. uh, after what was it, six weeks or whatever. Six week uh, ban. Yeah. Yeah. If we made a mistake, it was because we allowed babies to be murdered at, um, you know, five weeks. Why, why should babies be yes. murdered at five weeks? So, exactly. uh, and, and his embrace of the, uh, you know, the LGBT stuff, I think is unfortunate. I, I hope he'll come to his senses on that. Uh, now, uh, Ron DeSantis is interesting as well. He used to be my congressman. So I, I me mm. and uh, my people, we spent hours in his office uh, chastising him about votes that he should have voted differently on. Um, you know, he was a decent congressman, maybe not the, the best of the best, but he was part of the House Freedom Caucus. He did pave the way for John Boehner to become speaker, which, um, you know, I know we're supposed to forgive, but that one's hard to forgive. Uh, John mm. Boehner was a total sellout. Um, I haven't talked to Ron in a long time. Uh, most recently was maybe five or six months ago in Miami, but uh, he's a decent guy. I, I don't believe he's part of the swamp, but just like with Trump, um, you know, these evildoers are trying to manipulate him. In fact, I think it was the evildoers who convinced him to run in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was listening to Jeb Bush, you know, for people who aren't from Florida, they probably don't realize this, but Jeb Bush continues to haunt the halls of our legislature. He's extraordinarily influential here. Unfortunately, nobody will admit to that, right? You'll never find a, a right. Republican legislator who say, Oh yeah, I love Jeb Bush. The guy's politically toxic with the grassroots, but, He's still very influential with the with the establishment, even though they won't admit to that. So uh, DeSantis was listening to people like Jeb Bush, to people like Paul Ryan. Uh, they were telling, you know, they were massaging his ego and telling him, hey, you're going to do great. You should run. We're going to line up the big money behind you. You're going to win this. You know, start measuring the curtains for the Oval Office. You know, do you think that guy, was to avoid a Trump DeSantis ticket? Uh, well, I, I think it was to avoid a Trump. <laughs> I, I think they hated Trump so bad that they thought DeSantis was their only real hope of stopping him. Because, you know, DeSantis was a rock star here in Florida. I'll tell you what, he was a superstar. Um, I spoke at a few events with him uh, over the year before he he announced that he was running for president. And this guy, I mean, you would have thought from the way people were reacting that this guy walked on water, um, you know, without intending to be blasphemous. I mean, people were just like in awe of this guy everywhere he went oh my goodness Ron DeSantis people couldn't even get it it was it was it right. was like a, a superstar uh and now you know he, he is he's become toxic he, he, even the people around here where, where I say again he used to be my congressman uh, I know all the people who got him elected like no man DeSantis is terrible you know he crossed Trump and people don't like him anymore um so he really stepped in it but I think what what the Jeb Bushes and the Paul Ryans thought was like we need somebody who is genuinely conservative because you know we, we can't keep fooling the grassroots with Jeb Bushes and stuff anymore. It's just it's not going to work. They see through right. that now. The internet kind of messed that up for us. So they needed somebody who had credibility as a conservative to be able to take on Trump and the Republican Party, and they knew that. Um, and so the, I, I believe that's why they recruited Ron DeSantis for that. Um, and and he made a mistake. He shouldn't listen to them. Um, it, it's it, it was a shame. Uh, so I think he has probably destroyed his political career now, uh, which is unfortunate. I, I'm very thankful right. for everything he did as governor of Florida during the COVID stuff. Uh, you know, he, he didn't start out on the right foot, but boy, did he uh, end on the right foot. It, it got to the point where he really was sticking up for us. Uh, he was standing in the way of Joe Biden and his attacks on our people. Um, in, in, I mean, and I could give a lot of examples. It was extraordinary to see, like, for example, this OSHA mandate that they did, right, where Joe Biden and the OSHA said everybody who worked for a company had to go take the shot or the company was going to be fined $7,000 or whatever it was. They, uh, they got together in Tallahassee. They passed a law saying any company in Florida that fired somebody for not taking that shot uh, was going to pay, I think it was like 10 times the fine to the state wow. of Florida. And so what happened is not a lot of people got fired in the state of Florida for right. refusing to take that, uh, that injection. Uh, so I, I'm very grateful to DeSantis for those things. And, and I will remain very, and I know people are going to get mad at me, the Trump supporter. Oh, you can't say nice things about DeSantis. 
he was a good governor, uh, by far the best out of all 50 states. There was nobody that even held a candle to him. And so I'm grateful to him for that. Um, I would have preferred to see him work with Trump to help him get the nominee, but it it is what it is. You know, he, he stepped in it now. I I don't think he can go back now. It's, you know, it's, it's done. Uh, and then the last one you asked about Vivek Ramaswamy, um, you know, full disclosure as a Christian, I, I could not vote for a pagan, um, I, I, I just couldn't. And I don't mean that sound bigoted. I'm sure, you know, the non-Christians out there and maybe even some Christians, are like, well, he's, we're not electing a pastor. We're like, no, sorry. Um, you know, I, I, I just I, I think that Christians ought to prefer Christian rulers, um, yeah. you know, who, who share the same values, principles, moral code as we do. Uh, Hinduism uh, is clearly not compatible with Christianity. Uh, in fact, again, if you read if you read what the Apostle Paul said, uh, what the pagans sacrifice, they're sacrificing to demons. Um, now, I like a lot of what Vivek Ramaswamy is saying. Um, he's got some troubling things in his past, uh, and I asked him about those. Um, uh, he and I spoke at an event uh, in New Hampshire. Uh, what was it over the summer? Uh, Camp Constitution, and uh, and I happen to know some of his senior staff. I've worked with them at, at various institutions in dc and other things so i I know some of the people that are running his campaign uh so i I had an opportunity to ask him some questions and um he's a very good talker he's clearly very very intelligent i mean he's very very intelligent i mean he's incredibly smart um i hope he believes everything that he's saying uh because he's saying some really good things i loved his opening in that debate i didn't even i don't even watch these debates anymore but i loved what he said yeah. about the fake news and ronald mcdaniel it just it, it needed that's to be one said. for the history books yeah absolutely so i'm glad he's in the race um I, a lot of the things that he's articulating publicly i like um you know i i think he needs to be more upfront with people about a number of things uh, his previous work with big pharma um his 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 faith right um uh, I, I actually don't know that he's eligible to become president. I've, I've seen very strong arguments from constitutional attorneys and scholars that he's not a natural born citizen. Uh, his father is still not a citizen. Neither of his parents were citizens when he was born, which means when he was born, he automatically owed allegiance to a foreign power, which means under their understanding that he is not a natural born citizen. Um, he, he might make uh, you know a good uh, cabinet secretary in, in a possible Trump administration. Um but uh, but yeah, I mean, and people can go watch the the interview I did. It, it wasn't more than I think ten minutes, but I asked him about his past ties to the World Economic Forum. I did ask him about his paganism. I, I, I said, you know, America is a Christian country founded on biblical principles. These are you know intertwined with our history, and uh, you know you are not a Christian, and so you know how how would you govern in light of the fact that we are a Christian nation and the Bible informed all of our governing documents? Um, and uh, you know he, he gave a very slick answer. Uh, right. I don't know that he actually answered the question, but uh, but yeah, those you know that's what I'll say about the three. I, I think all of them are, are decent people. Uh, any of them would be better than the current occupant of the White House. But, for sure. Uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's tough. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for that because that's definitely insightful. Because you know, to your point earlier, we don't put our our faith in these politicians. Because I mean, to be honest, if you put your faith in a politician. You, You've got a lot of things to work through <laughs> because if you haven't learned by now that a politician's going to let you down, even the best ones, you know, right. you, you are probably new to politics. Yep. Um, but of course we do have a responsibility to, to vote and to be educated voters. And to that reason, I really appreciate you giving your insight there and the audience can, can take it with uh, however much uh, a pound of salt or a grain of salt, however much they want to take, you know? Um, but uh, either way, I really appreciate your transparency there, Alex. So I, I wanted to talk for the last bit of the, of the show about 
solutions and how we can metaphorically fight back against this the deep state and the globalist actors that are trying to constantly erode our freedoms? Yeah, good question. And I, I would say step one, consult your Bible. <laughs> I mean, yeah. The Bible's got everything we need to handle this. You know, when they talk about the Great Reset, we need to be talking about the Great Commission. We need to be making disciples of all nations. We need to be baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We need to be teaching them to obey all that God has commanded us. Um, and, I, and I think that as, as Christians is one of our top responsibilities is to go out and make disciples of all nations. Um, you know, I think as parents, um, one of the most important responsibilities that we have in this life is raising and discipling the children that God has entrusted to us. They are God's children and we are going to give an account for what we did. Hmm. Um, and, um, you know, I, I always try to handle this delicately so as not to cause offense. But at the same time, I want to be as, as honest and frank as I can. Uh, the government schools are actively working to undermine your family. They're actively mm -hmm. working to undermine the faith of your children. They're actively working to undermine everything that we hold dear. And, uh, you know, again, I, I, I use this uh, quote from Jesus before. You're either with me or you're against me. And nobody today can sensibly make a good argument that the public schools are with Christ. And so I believe yeah. as Christians, we really need to urgently be getting our children out of these godless, you might even say diabolical indoctrination centers masquerading as schools. Um, the Bible tells you know, the Bible doesn't tell us how many hours of math or science you might need to have a well-rounded education, but it does tell us the basics, right? Proverbs one nine, Proverbs uh, or, or Proverbs uh, nine ten, Proverbs one seven. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Your children are not only not learning any fear of the Lord in these public schools; they're learning mockery blasphemy mm. of the Lord. And so they're not going to yeah. be getting any knowledge or any wisdom there. Uh, I do believe one of the most urgent things that Christians could be doing right now is properly educating and discipling their own children. Uh, now, with those obviously apply to all Christians everywhere. Right. Um, but there are, uh, you know, we are the body of Christ. Um, and, and the scriptures teach clearly that we each have different talents. We each have different functions within the body of Christ, right? We, we don't need 55 ears and zero eyes. We need some eyes. We need some ears. We need a nose. We need hands. We need feet. Uh, and so, you know, what somebody watching us right now is called to do is probably going to look different than what I'm called to do, even though we're all ultimately working toward the same purposes. Um, and so, you know, for me, uh, I'm a journalist. And so I, I go to Ephesians uh, chapter five, verse 11, I have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them or expose them. Expose them and yeah. so, you know what, God called me to reprove and expose. I, I feel beyond blessed and honored that I get to do that six days a week, 51 weeks out of the year. And I will reprove and expose until God takes me home. Uh, but that may not be uh, your calling. That, you know, the, your calling may be something totally different, right? Uh, and so I, I think to to know what God has called us to do, we need to be reading our Bible. We need to be in prayer. We need to be asking God for guidance here. And we need to see what doors he is opening for us. Um, did, did he make you very, very good at speaking? Well, maybe use that. Um, did he make you very good at organizing or, or administration? Well, maybe use your gifts to, to serve the church in that manner. Right? God has given each of us different talents, different skill sets, different circumstances, and we need to be using those for the glory of God. So uh, I would encourage people to get informed on what's going on. You know, the Apostle Paul says we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. And unfortunately, that's not true for a lot of Christians in America today. They're completely ignorant of Satan's devices. In fact, there, there's a, a, a huge number of churches in this country or things that call themselves churches where they don't even believe that Satan is an actual 
being, right? That's just a metaphor for like, no, no, Satan is a person. And, um, you know, we, we need to get informed on the devices that Satan is using so that we will not fall victim to them, so that we will not be deceived by them. Uh, we need to draw closer to God. Um, I, I think we really do need to focus on theology. There is so much bad theology in America today. There's so much bad theology being taught in the seminaries today. Uh, your source for theology ought to be the Bible. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's nice to listen to sermons on YouTube. It's nice to go to church and, and hear your pastor. Those are all good things, but we need to be checking everything against Scripture yeah. because there's a lot of bad theology. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I could go on, but I just I would encourage everybody to understand we're in a spiritual war. Understand that God has given us instructions and uh, understand, too, you know, a lot of people get caught up in, um, you know, we were talking a little bit about eschatology earlier. You've got a lot of people who've almost been neutralized because, you know, they're, they're just waiting for the rapture. They're, they're just right. waiting for, you know, uh, they're, they're just focused on figuring out who the Antichrist is going to be. And like, you know, th yep. those things are fine. I, I don't want to you know bash somebody for that. But like, don't let that neutralize you and then take you out of the battle. Right. We're, we're in a war and our weapons are not carnal. But we need to be actively involved. And if you're just sitting around thinking, oh, well, you know, Satan's going to take over the world. So I'm just going to hang out here and just, uh, you know, hope uh, that I get raptured tomorrow. Um, you know, you're, you're not really doing anything for Christ. You're not really doing anything for the church. And so we need to not be neutralized by these types of things. Um, and, uh, you know, it's uh, ultimately just God's given us the instructions. We just need to rely 100 percent on him. Recognize that uh, you know, God's already victorious. The war is already won. Uh, Christ claimed the victory for all of us at Calvary. His resurrection proved it. And so this isn't like, uh, you know, the battle depends on whether you do what you need to do or not. Right. God can find somebody else to do what you would do otherwise if you won't do it. Um, so, you know, God's not sitting up there thinking, oh, I, I hope this guy does what I need him to do. He's, he's not thinking like that at all. The, the, the victory is already secured. We just need to be doing what God has called us to do because we love him and because we want to honor him. And so I, I would just conclude with that. Find out what God has assigned for you and then get busy doing it to the best of your ability with God's help. Amen. Well, thank you for that, because we've been hammering on that same same drumbeat of uh, not letting your eschatology uh, allow you to be complacent, because it's really easy to just sit around and be uh, observing everything that's going on, trying to decipher everything. But uh, ultimately, we just need to be acting. We need to be doing the next right thing that God has for us. And that may just be, uh, you know, uh, shutting off your phone and being a good dad for an evening, yeah. you know, and and working on doing that more consistently so that your children can just have you present. And that may look like you being a good husband or doing your work well and doing it mm -hmm. unto the glory of God and being the best, uh, you know, the best uh, bricklayer that you can or the, or the bre the best, uh, um, you know, um, uh, dialing. Um, what am I thinking of here? Um, just in the workplace, you know, wh whatever your job is, um, just um, I'm losing my, my thoughts here, but ultimately, you know, just doing your work well um, and making sure that you are honoring God with everything that you do each day. And um, anyways, I say that to hopefully free some people up because sometimes when we hear these, these, these giant ideas that Alex and I have been talking about tonight, it's really easy to, <laughs> to think that you have to do something big. You have to run for presidency. And if anything, that's the mistake I think too many people make. I think they try to fix it all. And then you do see all these people that throw their hat into the ring that have no business 
being there. Like you're not necessarily called to become the next president. You might just be called to be a good husband, good father, good worker, and ultimately someone that just reads scripture and knows scripture and lives it out each day. So I really appreciate what you said there, Alex. But um, yeah, well, I want to go ahead and uh, turn it over to you to let people know where they can follow you and keep up with everything that you're doing. And if you have any book recommendations, I know you've written quite a few. Um, so feel free to go ahead and plug whatever you like. Uh, well, thank you so much, Connor. I appreciate it. Uh, if people want to follow my work, uh, you can go to my website, libertysentinel.org is behind me. You can get signed up for my newsletter. We send it out about twice a week. Uh, it's absolutely free. Um, uh, I, I actually uh, lead, I help lead a, a ministry called Public School Exit. Uh, you can find us at publicschoolexit.com. Uh, it, it, it's a, I have a fancy title. I'm the executive director, but I'm a volunteer. I, I don't take a salary. I do it because it's a labor of love. Uh, we serve churches and families across the country and beyond, uh, trying to, as a goal, get as many Christian children as possible out of the government school system. Uh, and whatever that looks like, we want to help. Uh, if a church wants to set up a school, if a church wants to set up a scholarship fund, if a church wants to um, you know, just preach a sermon on uh, how we should be thinking about education, we're there every step of the way to help. If We, we do have a paid staff out in California, but um, that's uh, something that I really, really appreciate. Um, great, great ministry that we're doing. Um, what else? Uh, I, I write for a lot of different publications. I serve as senior editor for the New American Magazine, uh, write for maybe half a dozen publications, but I, I typically at least post something about it on uh, libertysentinel.org. Uh, you can follow me on social media. I've written a bunch of books and I'm working on another one. It probably should be out within the next month or so. Uh, the history of the public school system, how they de-Christianized America using government education. Hmm. And um, yeah, and, and all that can be found at, uh, at my website again. And uh, thank you for having me on, Connor. I appreciate it. It's been a real joy to uh, have a, a chat with a, a brother who really, I think, gets it like you do. So thank you very much for having me on. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Yeah, the pleasure has been mine. And we'll definitely have to have you on again to talk about education. I almost made that the topic for tonight as well, because I know your history on that too. But uh, um, since you got a book coming out, we'll have you back on as soon as that book's out so we can help you promote it. And uh, we can pick your brain on education in much more detail than we were able to expand upon tonight. But thanks again, Alex. I really appreciate it. And thank you everyone for watching or listening wherever you consume this content. Please share it, like it, give it five stars, give us a nice review wherever you consume this medium. We really appreciate it. And we hope you have a fantastic rest of your day or evening, whatever time it is as you're consuming this. We'll see you next time.